chapter 6. Today we begin our consideration of the history of the flood, and that spans chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9. So we will be spending a few weeks on this history and make a beginning today. The text for the sermon will be the first seven verses, so pay special attention to those. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also flesh. Yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children unto them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be three hundred cubits, the breadth of it fifty cubits, and the height of it thirty cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above. And the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth, to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life, from under heaven. And everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee, and of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female, of fowls after their kind and of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind. Two of every sort shalt come unto thee to keep them alive. And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it unto thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Focus our attention this afternoon on the first seven verses of this chapter. 
The days before the flood were some of the most wicked days in the history of the world. And as we approach this text today, we might wonder how did the world become so wicked so fast? How did the world become so wicked that God destroyed it with a flood? How did it become so wicked that there were only eight souls left on the earth whom God saved? If we go back and look at the previous five chapters of Genesis, we remind ourselves that God created Adam and Eve. And then, on the one hand, we find that through the line of Cain, one of the sons of Adam and Eve, mankind surely developed in great wickedness. Cain himself was a very wicked man. Cain tried to become righteous before God by the works of his hands. He trusted in himself. And then he murdered his brother Abel, who trusted not in himself, but trusted in the blood of the lamb who was to come. And then as we looked at the line of Cain, we noticed wicked Lamech and his three sons, Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal-Cain, And we saw that Lamech, the seventh from Adam, was an illustration of the development of wickedness at about the midpoint of the era before the flood. Lamech took two wives. He was the first to practice polygamy. And then he murdered a young man who had wounded him. He took revenge on that young man and killed him. But that's not all. Then he made a song and he boasted, singing that song to his wives, about how great he was for taking revenge on the young man. So there was the line of Cain, and surely we can see there a development of wickedness. But at the same time, we saw that God gave Adam and Eve another son, Seth, instead of Abel. And we saw in chapter 5 that in the line of Seth, God did the wonder of grace, God gathered to himself a people for his name and for his praise. He gathered a people who began to call upon the name of the Lord in the days of Enos. And as we looked at the line of Seth through Enos, we noticed the history of Enoch, who was also the seventh from Adam. Enoch was characteristic of the godly of those days. He walked with God for his whole life, and then God took him to heaven in his body and soul, and we saw that this was a picture of God's grace gathering his church in that period before the flood. And we are to understand that the son of Enoch, Methuselah, he also walked with God throughout his life, and the son of Methuselah was Lamech, the good Lamech. He walked with God as well, and his son was Noah, who obviously walked with God by faith as well. So we have, in addition to the line of Cain, the line of Seth, and this picture of God's church in the world, calling upon his name and walking with him. So how did it happen that the world became so wicked that God had to destroy and wipe out all flesh with a flood? If we have both of these movements taking place in that period. That's what God inspired Moses to describe to us in our text. That's what our text is about today. 
Our text is the revelation to us of how the world became so terribly wicked that God had to destroy it. And this instruction of our text is very important and significant for us. In Matthew 24, our Lord Jesus gives the signs of the times, the signs of his coming. And he says in there, as the days of Noah, as the days before the flood were, so also will be the days before the coming of the Son of Man. So our Lord Jesus teaches us we are to be instructed from the days before the flood because they apply to our days. And what happened then is going to happen in the last days. And we can tell from the signs around us that we live in those last days. We don't know the day or the hour of his return, but we do know that we must learn from the scriptures of the things that are going to come before the coming of Christ. So I call your attention to the text under the theme, the days before the flood. Let's notice, first of all, these were days of intermarriage and the spread of wickedness. Secondly, we are told that God sees, grieves, and repents. And then, finally, the clock is set for destruction. God teaches us in our text that one of the main reasons or causes of the spread of wickedness in the world before the flood was intermarriage. The intermarriage of the sons of God with the daughters of men. Verses 1 and 2, And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Now, obviously, immediately after the fall, men began to beget children. The text says, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. When did that happen? We know that men were already begetting children early in that period before the flood. But the text seems to indicate that there was a point of time in that era when there was a population boom, a population explosion, as it were, that men began to multiply on the face of the earth. Exponentially, the human race was multiplying. And naturally, when that happened, not only were there more sons born, but there were more daughters born as well. And that's what Moses calls to our attention in the text. Daughters were born unto men. And it was in that situation when many, many daughters were being born that there were more women in the world to be seen. We are told that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Now, there was an ancient interpretation of this text going back thousands of years, which was very strange and speculative, and I just mention it so that you are aware of it. It goes like this. They said that these sons of God, in verse 2, actually refer to angels. And for proof of that, they bring us to the book of Job. There are a few places in the book of Job where angels are described as the sons of God. So these sons of God, they say, were angels, but they must have been fallen angels. They must have been demons. 
And these demons were up in the heavenly places, looking down on the earth and noticing the daughters of men, human women, and were envying the human men of their privilege to marry human women because these demons were noticing the beauty of these women. And the demons were envious. They wanted to have that. They wanted to enjoy marriage with such beautiful women. So these demons came down. They took of the daughters of men, the fair, beautiful women, whichever ones they chose. They went in unto them, and the result was these giants of verse 4, these men of renown, these men of ancient times. And they claim that these children born of this demonic human relationship were a kind of hybrid race of gigantic, mighty, fearsome demon humans who began to roam the earth in those days. And this was part of the reason then why God had to destroy the earth with a flood because these giant demon humans were causing so much wickedness. That's a very strange interpretation of the text, to say the least, and there are very few, if any, who hold to that today. Probably there are some, but we should be aware of that at least. That's mere speculation. And over against that, we can put the words of our Lord Jesus himself, who said that angels don't marry, and they don't give in marriage. Angels are not male or female. Angels do not have that kind of a desire for marriage or for intercourse, as according to that theory. We can also mention the fact that angels and humans are two different kinds of creatures with two different kinds of natures. It's not possible for an angel to go into a human. So that's not the correct interpretation of the text. The obvious and natural interpretation is that these sons of God and these daughters of men were both human beings. These sons of God were human men, and these daughters of men were human women. But there's obviously a distinction being made there. We're not told about the sons of man going into the daughters of man, or the sons of God going into the daughters of God, but the sons of God looked at the daughters of man. What is the distinction there? The distinction is between Men who were born and raised in the church. Men who were born and raised of believing parents in the covenant. Men, boys, young men, who had been taught since they were young who God is and who considered themselves and professed themselves to be sons of God, children of God by adoption, by faith in the coming Messiah. That was their profession. That was their upbringing. The daughters of men, on the other hand, did not have such an upbringing and did not have such a profession. They were the daughters of men. In the original, we could translate the daughters of man. The emphasis is on the fact that they were daughters of man, not daughters of God. These were women who grew up outside of the covenant community. They were not raised by believing parents. They were not taught to walk in the ways of the Lord. But they were raised in the city and the society built by man, for man, by the power of man, for the glory of man, 
for the pleasure of man. These women grew up in that society. They were taught the principles of that society. They were taught the love of the flesh, the love of the world, the love of pleasure and treasure. They were unbelievers. They were ungodly women. They did not walk with God, but they danced with the devil. They did not care about chastity and purity and modesty and godliness and virtue. But these were women who liked to flaunt what they had, who liked to expose as much of their bodies as they could, who wanted to reveal their skin, who loved to play the game of seduction, to stroke their egos. So that's the distinction in the text. And now we are told that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair. What we immediately can note is that these sons of God obviously did not see the daughters of God anymore, if they ever did. They weren't looking at the daughters of God. They had no interest in the daughters of God. The daughters of God, like the sons of God, were the girls who were born and raised in the church. They were the girls who were raised by believing parents, or if they were converted and brought into the church. They were girls, they were young women who believed in the coming Messiah, who believed the promises of God, who walked with God, who loved God, who also cared about modesty and chastity and purity and were careful about the way they dressed and about the way they looked. But the sons of God were not looking at them, we are told, but they were looking at the daughters of man and noticing that they were fair and were taking note of their bodies and their faces and their behavior. That's what they were noticing, according to our text. And then, noticing them, they lusted after them, obviously. Their lust was kindled. They desired those women. They had no interest in these Christian girls. They were interested in these worldly women. And laying their eyes upon them, desiring them, we are told, they took them wives of all which they chose. They took them wives. They married those women of the world. And that already teaches us again something more. That the sons of God had forgotten or despised or ignored or no longer cared for God's glorious institution of marriage. That God had set down in the beginning when he gave to Adam his wife Eve. When he created two humans in his own image and after his own likeness to dwell together in a sacred bond of love as two individuals who have one faith, who together believe in this one God, who serve him, love him, worship him together in the Garden of Eden. The sons of God were taught, to some degree or other, what marriage is supposed to be. They knew that marriage is meant to be a relationship between a man and a woman for life, and that that man and that woman are to be of the same faith, they are to share the same values, the same upbringing, the same doctrines, but they no longer cared for that. They had no interest in that. They started to view marriage as a way rather to gratify the lusts of the flesh, 
They viewed marriage as a relationship in which they could satisfy their base desires, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes. And probably that's why the text says they took them wives of all which they chose. They chose wives based on what they saw, based on their preferences of who was more physically attractive or to whom they were more emotionally attracted. And they chose wives of all which they chose. And that seems to indicate they didn't just choose one wife, but they chose as many wives as they liked. Despising God's institution of marriage between one man and one woman and entering into marriage as a way of gratifying the flesh, as soon as they were no longer gratified by one woman, they would take another woman. And when that woman didn't suit them, they would take another woman and another woman and another woman. Remember, Lamech set a new pattern when he took two wives. So polygamy developed in the earth, and the bond and the relationship of marriage, the foundation of the home, the foundation of society, was trampled underfoot, was despised. And the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes reigned. The fruit of those marriages is described in verse 4. We are told there were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. Moses first teaches that there were giants in the earth in those days, even prior to the days of our text. There were giants in the earth. It's possible that these men were physical giants, that they were men of great stature, literally tall, gigantic men. The word that Moses uses here is a rare word in the Old Testament, the word Nephilim. And that word appears only in one other verse in the Bible. That's Numbers 13, verse 33. Numbers 13, verse 33, there we read this. And we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Joshua and Caleb, when they went into the land of Canaan, they saw giants, physical giants. We were in their sight as grasshoppers, they said. We were small, they were huge. These were the Nephilim. And the sons of Anak came from the Nephilim, men like Goliath and his brothers. And we're told that those giants were eight to nine feet tall, literally gigantic men. It's very possible that that is in part what is meant in our text as well. But there are other commentators such as John Calvin who believe that the emphasis is really on the fact that they were giants of iniquity. These were men of great ego. These were men of great arrogance. These were men of great violence, men of great tyranny, giants of wickedness. And it's possible that both are true. Because wherever we encounter physical giants in the Bible, those giants are also giants of ego. Just think of Goliath and his blasphemous boast and defiance of the God of Israel. 
These giants who were in the earth in those days were extremely wicked, boastful, arrogant, violent men. And then, when the sons of God married the daughters of men and went in unto them, and they gave birth to children, those children were also such giants. And you can see then that the emphasis is not on men of great physical stature, but the emphasis is this. When the sons of God married the daughters of men, the children that came forth of those marriages were giants of iniquity. They did not give birth to the children of God, but they gave birth to the children of the devil. That's the emphasis. The product of mixed marriages is giants, mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. Moses is telling the Israelites, we've heard stories about these men of old, these men of ancient times, these giants of pride and arrogance, these men of renown, literally men with a name. They were men who had a name, but their name was not godliness. Their name was not for faith. Their name was not the love of God. They had a name for wickedness. What God is giving to us in the text, then, is a picture of great apostasy. The word apostasy is a biblical word from 2 Thessalonians 2 that means falling away. We are given here a picture of falling away from the faith, falling away from God by those who once were raised or who once lived within the church of God and at least outwardly pretended to worship God. Apostasy. Now, intermarriage in and of itself is an act of apostasy already, apostasy of the heart. In order for a young man to take an ungodly, unbelieving woman of the world as his wife, he must already in his heart turn away from God. He must in his heart turn from God and turn to that woman, or if this is a young woman, turn from God and turn to that young man and decide, I want that more than I want God. I want that more than I wish to walk with God. That's already apostasy. But when that takes place, the apostasy gets worse. Because then, what almost always happens, not always, but more often than not, is that the Christian, the person who was raised in the church, is going to leave the church with their spouse and go out into the world and raise their children out in the world. So they're going to raise children who did not go to church when they were little, who did not go to catechism, who did not learn to pray, who did not learn to sing God's praises and walk by faith. That's what happens. That's how apostasy happens. That's what the text is teaching. Intermarriage is one of the primary causes of apostasy. And this then explains the fact that in the days before the flood, the earth became more and more wicked and the church became more and more small. 
How did that happen? Intermarriage led to apostasy. Apostasy led to the spread of wickedness. So that the church rapidly shrunk down to eight souls, Noah and his family, and that was it. And the rest of the world was utterly wicked. There is instruction for us here today, and the instruction is to us as parents that we teach our children and nurture our children from the times when they were very little with the ideal and the calling to marry in the Lord. And that if our children decide to marry the ungodly and to leave the church and walk away from God, we don't give our approval to that. And the exhortation to our young people is, young people, do not marry the ungodly. Do not marry those who hate God, those who want nothing to do with the Lord, those who want nothing to do with the church. This text is the first in a long string of passages that runs through the whole Bible in which God repeatedly warns his people against the danger of intermarriage. There's nothing new under the sun. This has always been a temptation, always been a danger to God's people. This is the first in a long line of texts. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 2 through 4 is another. Before the Israelites were about to go into Canaan, Moses said, Thou shalt make no covenant with them, neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly." And in the book of Judges, we see that the children of Israel did not listen to that. But they did exactly what Moses said not to do. They gave their daughters to the Canaanites, and they gave their sons to the Canaanites. And apostasy took place. And God chastened them by raising up foreign powers until they cried out to him in repentance, and he raised up a judge to deliver them. And it happened again and again and again. This is what the Lord Jesus also mentions in Matthew 24, 37-39. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Paying no attention to the Lord, marrying, giving in marriage, enjoying life, until the flood came and swept them all away. Jesus says, that's what it will be like in the last days. People will become less and less interested in the Lord, in the church, in the Bible, in the gospel, in Christ. They will be living it up, enjoying life, eating, drinking, drunken and gluttonous, giving their children to whomever they want to marry until at last the Lord comes and sudden destruction. 
Then we are told that God saw. He saw the spread of wickedness. Verse 5. He saw it, he repented, and he grieved at his heart. First, we are told that God saw the wickedness of man. He saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. How great? Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Only evil continually. Now, on the one hand, we understand that is a description of the total depravity of every single man since the fall into sin. That's true of us by nature. Our depravity is total. Our depravity is complete. It pervades our whole nature. Our wickedness, apart from the grace of God, is great. And we must never forget that. That we are not better than the ungodly world around us by nature. But for the grace of God working in us, this would be true of us as well. And it is true of us in our old man of sin. That every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every imagination of the thoughts that come out of our heart from our old man of sin is only evil continually. Evil, 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 and more evil. Nothing but evil. Every imagination, every intention, every purpose and plan, every dream that was cherished in the heart, every plan that was brought into action, everything that flowed up out of the heart of man was only evil continually. That's a description of us by nature. That's a description of the whole world. We sang that earlier from Psalm 14. The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have all gone astray. God looked down from heaven to see if there was any that did good. There wasn't even one. They're all unrighteous. They've all gone astray. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. And perhaps that helps us to understand why God says the same thing after the flood in fewer words. In Genesis 8, verse 21, after the flood, after God destroyed those wicked people, we read this, And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. That was still true after the flood. Because that is a description of the depravity of man in any age. But we are told in our text that God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that doesn't merely refer to the total depravity of man. It refers to the development of that depravity. It refers to the expression of that depravity. It refers to that darkness of man's nature coming out to expression in all of his words and actions and behaviors in new and creative and disgusting ways. As technology developed, man developed new and ugly, disgusting ways to sin. 
And God took note. As the sons of God intermarried with the daughters of men, despising God's institution of marriage, raising their children outside of the church, God took note. As people who were once taught to look forward to the promise of the coming Christ, but who walked away from that, God took note. And God saw how the wickedness of man was spreading, was growing, was filling the earth. Could not God have done something about that? Could not God have come in his grace and regenerated more people? Could not God have worked faith in more people in those days? Yes, he could have done that because we believe in a sovereign God. So when we are told that God saw this wickedness, it is not as if God is sitting in heaven looking down at the earth and God is wringing his hands. He wishes it wasn't going that way. And there's nothing he can do about it. We'll see more of that in just a minute. No, God was seeing what God had already determined was going to happen. God determined that the world would become wicked and would fill up the cup of iniquity. So we are given these notes later in the chapter in verse 11. The earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. There is this idea of being filled. It was God's will. Even though God hated that sin, it was his will that the earth would fill up with violence, with arrogance, with pride and wickedness of all kinds. God is a sovereign God and nothing happens outside of his perfect plan. What then does it mean in verse 6 that it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. That sure sounds like God was wringing his hands in heaven displeased about the way things were going but there was nothing he could do about it. There are people who actually believe that's the explanation of the text. There's a theological movement called open theism, another one called process theology. Those kinds of theologians are teaching that when the Bible says it repented the Lord, the idea is that the Lord does not have perfect and full knowledge of everything that's going to happen in the future. The Lord does not even know what's going to happen tomorrow. And the Lord is not in control of what happens. The Lord has more power than anyone else or anything else, but he doesn't have omnipotent power. He doesn't have sovereign control over all things. And so they say, look, the Bible says the Lord repented and he grieved. That's expressing the fact that God didn't want it to go this way. God wished it hadn't gone this way. God wished he could undo what he had done. God realized that he had made a mistake by creating man. And now God will try to start over again. 
he will send a flood, wipe out the corrupt earth, and then start over again with Noah and hope that things go better the second time around. But we know from the rest of Scripture that's not who God is. The rest of Scripture teaches us that God is the Almighty. God is the sovereign Lord of lords and King of kings. Psalm 115 says that our Lord is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. And Isaiah 46 teaches that God knows the end from the beginning and from ancient times. He knows the things that have not yet come to pass. And he says, my counsel, my plans, my purposes will stand. Nobody can thwart me. Nobody can frustrate God's perfect plans. Ephesians 1 verse 11 says that God works all things out according to his counsel. What then does it mean? When we are told that it repented the Lord, the Lord regretted, the Lord was sorry, the Lord grieved that he made man. He grieved deeply in his heart. We read that kind of language elsewhere in the Bible too. For example, 1 Samuel 15 verse 11. God said to Samuel, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king. Once again, it almost looks like God is saying, I regret that I did that. I shouldn't have done that. That was a big mistake. Now I'm going to remove Saul and put David as king. But in the very same chapter, 1 Samuel 15 verse 29 Samuel says to Saul, the strength of Israel, that's God, will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. And then at the end of that chapter, we read, the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. Samuel says, the Lord doesn't repent, he's not a man. And then the Bible says, the Lord repented. We are to understand here that in reality, the Lord in himself never repents. He cannot lie. He cannot repent because he is perfect. He is unchanging. All of his ways are perfect. He never makes a mistake. He does everything according to plan. But the Bible tells us that God repents. That's what we call an anthropomorphism to show us how deeply God is grieved over sin, how deeply displeased God is with wickedness. It is as if he repented of it. That's what we are supposed to do with regard to our sins. We are to be grieved deeply over our sins and to repent over them. That's what we are called to do. Because we do change. We, don't, we aren't perfect. We don't always walk perfectly in God's ways. We sin. And then we have to repent. We have to turn. We have to change. We have to recognize and sorrow over our sins and change our ways. God doesn't have to do that. But God uses that language in the Bible to help us to understand something. He is grieved over sin. He hates it. He is profoundly angry and saddened over sin. Saddened. Grieved, we are told. It grieved him at his heart. When the Bible says at his heart, it is teaching us 
in the deepest recesses of his divine being, God grieves over that sin, that wickedness. When God is sad and angry and grieved over sin, that, again, doesn't mean that he changes, but that is God trying to show us, teaching us in the Bible, his displeasure with sin as rebellion against himself. God repented when he saw the wickedness of man on the earth. He was grieved at it. Thank God that God did not repent for creating us. God repented for creating those men, and he destroyed them. Thank God that he doesn't repent for creating you and me. And do you know why he doesn't repent over that? Because he has sent and given his own son for us to bear that grief. Isaiah 53, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He bore our grief and carried our sorrows. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. And the Lord laid upon him the iniquities of us all, our wretchedness, our wickedness, our depravity. He laid it all upon Christ. And he bore that grief at the cross so that God never, never, never repents about us whom he loves. He never changes his mind about his election of us, his redemption, and his promises. He is faithful to his people. But God is repenting again today. As God looks down from heaven upon the wickedness of man today, as God sees intermarriage taking place, apostasy, and the spreading of iniquity, as God hears men as they shake their fist at heaven, denying that there is a God, saying that this world came about by chance through billions of years of evolution from the primordial ooze of the early earth. By chance, man came into existence. There is no God. This world is all that there is. And as man lives how he pleases, as man tramples underfoot the institution of marriage, desecrating it, as man seeks to marry based on the lusts of the eyes and the lusts of the flesh, as men marry men and women marry women, as men marry women and divorce them and marry other women and other women and other women and take unto them all the wives that they choose, God looks down from heaven and he repents that he has made man on the earth. He sees an earth full of violence, an earth full of war, senseless wars, unprovoked wars, tyrants, wicked rulers of nations who invade countries for no good reason but their pride and their ego. When he sees gang violence, senseless murders, revenge, abortion, hatred, God grieves. The end does draw near. We don't know when, but we know that it draws near. In the text, we are told that in the days before the flood, God set the clock ticking. 
That's the idea of verse 3. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be in hundred and twenty years. God set the clock ticking. He set the timer at a hundred and twenty years. And the clock started ticking. He said, I will not always strive with man. God does strive with man. That word strive means contend. God contends with man. He does that through his word. He raised up prophets like Enoch and Noah, preachers of righteousness. And Enoch and Noah and other men of God in those days contended with that wicked world. They preached against those evils and that wickedness, called them to repentance, called them to faith in the coming Messiah. God was contending with them. He was striving with them. That doesn't mean that God strives or wrestles with man, but God is unable to change him. God is able to change anyone. But God is not pleased to change everyone. And yet he strives with man. He contends with him through his spirit, through that preaching. But he doesn't do so forever. God says, I will not strive with man forever. Verse 3, not always, not forever. The time will come when I will no longer contend with man through my word. I will take away my prophets. I will take away preachers. And that's when destruction comes. God set the, talk, the clock ticking at 120 years. Some explain that verse, verse 3, to mean that it was at this time that God decreased the lifespan of men. Whereas previously they lived almost 900 years or more, now they will live about 120 years. It's a possible explanation, but I don't think it's the correct one. It makes more sense in the whole context here to explain it this way, that God set the clock ticking. 120 years is all you have left. That's when the flood will come. 120 years. That's what the Lord said. Whom did he say that to? The Lord said this. He must have said it to his people. He must have said it through the prophets. He must have said it through Enoch or probably through Noah. He told his people that the time was now limited. The time would be short when destruction would come. We read of that in verse 7. The Lord said, this is what he also said through the prophets, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. That sounds so severe. But this is the word of God. God is not only a God of sweet love and compassion. He is. He's also a God of justice. He's a God who brings punishment upon the ungodly when they fill up the cup of iniquity. My spirit will not always strive. My spirit will strive. God does contend. God does send his word. He does send prophets. Because God leaves man without excuse. He contends with man. He reasons with man. He shows man the truth. He calls man to repent, to believe. Repent, the preacher says. Believe. God's messengers say to the world, God is striving with them. 
But the time will come when he will no longer do that. He will remove his servants from the earth. And that's when the destruction comes. This divine promise in verses 3 and 7 was the gospel to God's beleaguered people in those days. It was the gospel to them. Not because God's people take delight in the destruction of any human being. We don't. We don't wish or desire for the destruction and damnation of anyone. We witness to our neighbors. We hope and pray for their salvation. But it is the gospel to the ears of God's people because they live in times when they are feeling as if they are being swallowed up by that wickedness of the world. And they begin to feel that their cause is vain and they are going to be swallowed up. And so God comes and says, No, my people, I am God. I control this world. Justice will be done. The wicked will be punished. I will destroy them from the earth. And indeed, God has done so already in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. And when he died on the cross, that was the sealing of the doom and destruction of all the ungodly. Why? Because When Jesus died on the cross, he paid for the sins of his people so that there is no curse or destruction for them. But he didn't die for the sins of those wicked and ungodly. And therefore, by his death on the cross, their fate was sealed. And that's the gospel to God's people. That's the gospel to all believers, to you and to me. We will not be swallowed up by an ungodly world. God knows the exact time when judgment will come. We don't know. We must fight the good fight. We must finish our course. We must witness to the world. We must preach. God knows when that clock will stop ticking. And the calling for us in this present time then is to watch and to pray. Watch the signs. Do not be afraid. Do not become paranoid. Do not become terrified as you see the things happening, but rejoice and continue watching, continue praying, continue living the Christian life. Be faithful to the Lord. Love your God. Marry in the Lord. Raise your children in the fear of the Lord. Come to hear the word of the Lord. Do not be afraid of the giants in the world, the giants of ego, the giants of arrogance and pride. Do not be afraid. Trust in the Lord your God and pray for Christ's coming. He's coming. And not only will he destroy a wicked world with fire, he'll create a new world, a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness will dwell, where we will dwell with God forever. Amen. Our Father and our God, we thank thee for thy word. We pray that thou would bless this instruction to our hearts. May we take home this scripture and apply it in our own lives. We thank thee for the gospel that we have heard. We thank thee for the promises. 
We pray that thou would bring to pass that great day of judgment and salvation. We pray for the coming of our Lord. We pray that thou would set our hearts upon paradise and everlasting life. 